Peter, I'm not driving. I'm just sitting in a car in a Sedona shaded parking lot where my wife and some German friends are having a breakfast dinner or breakfast after a hike this morning. So I'm I'm not driving if it, if it seems like I am. How hot is it in that car? I, I can't imagine. About 94, 95. And um, I'm comfortable. I mean, if, if I if I need to move to the front seat and turn the air conditioning on, I will. But I think I'm I think I'm good to go here. OK, good. 91 still sounds hot to me. It's not Jackson, okay? It's it's uh, <laughs> a dry heat. I, I remember that. It is a dry heat. So, thanks for having yeah, we, me on. You know, Phil, we probably shouldn't leave him in the oven too long. So, probably should get started because uh, I'm I'm afraid what cooked Cushing looks like. Yeah, you don't want me overheated, but I'm I think I'm I think I'm good. So, uh, well, let's get started. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Phil, it's been a while. Good to see you again. Thanks so much. Um, we're here again for our courageous conversation. And uh, thank you to Dr. Nelson and to Nationwide for supporting our efforts on communicating with the world. So, Phil, good to see you. Good to see you, Peter. We're fortunate to have Dr. Mark Cushing with us as our guest. And I also want to thank Nationwide and our producer, Nicole Nelson, for putting up with us for the last three years and sponsoring this podcast. Mark, thank you so much for taking time away from the heat of Arizona to uh, cool off with the two of us. My pleasure. Known you, Peter, for a lot of years and known and worked with Phil for too many years. So uh, he's put up with me and I put up with him. But uh, I admire what you all have put together with this courageous conversation. I've I've listened to a number of podcasts. I, I can't say that I've heard everyone, but I also have listened to a lot of colleagues that this is a regular listening and a regular post for them, so to speak. So, and in case your audience doesn't know it, these two gentlemen, honorable that they are, don't give you any idea what they're going to ask you ahead of time. There's, there's no advance notice. So <laughs> this could, could be the most painful hour I've spent since uh, Catholic grade school some years ago, or, or, or perhaps uh, perhaps not, but I, I'm sure it'll be fun. So appreciate you having me on. Well, the, one can only hope that it's painful for you, but the premise of this whole conversation that Peter lo loves to perpetuate is, is that we're just standing across the fence from each other in our backyards, and we're talking about issues of the day or the things that we choose to, to address. Let's start by introducing you to, to our audience for, the, for those who don't know. And I'm going to let you do most of the introduction. Mark Cushing is a mover and a shaker in our profession. He has been involved with a number of entities and associations. And he and I met while he was primarily associated with the Banfield practice. And he is probably irritating a lot of people because he's involved not just with veterinary uh, legislation and, and veterinary policies, but he's also involved in establishing a, a number of new veterinary schools. And I found it interesting that at the AVMA, the AVMA organization has questioned whether or not there's truly a shortage of, of veterinarians. And so I'm sure we'll talk about that. But tell <laughs> us a little bit about yourself, Mark. 
so I grew up in a, at the time, a very small Oregon town called McMinnville, which was west of Portland and was founded by folks from Tennessee. And interestingly, Phil and Peter, going back to a lot of your conversations and your, and your original conversations, McMinnville, when I grew up, was, had remnants still of the Ku Klux Klan. It was one of the two towns in Oregon, LeGrand was the other, that came from Southern roots. But in the case of McMinnville, it was principally anti-Catholic. The only, there, were, there's a, there was a college, Linfield College, that's a very celebrated athletic school and, and other programs. They wouldn't want to be called just a sports school. But they had outstanding Black uh, football and basketball players who coached my Catholic grade school. So, I, you know, I was introduced to wonderful coaches and, you know, and, and, you know, watched them play ball. And, you know, as a kid, that was a lot of my life was watching Linfield teams. But uh, I grew up in McMinnville. My dad was a small town lawyer, family of five. Somehow, four sons, we all went to Stanford, which is, you know, there was no check written to them other than tuition or no legacy there. But both, we all had good experiences there. I taught at uh, Loyola Prep in, in Phil and Peter's Hood in, in uh, downtown L.A. for a year. They were trying to get more kids into Stanford, so they, they let me teach for a year, which was fun. Then I came back and ended up practicing law for 12 years. And I thought I'd do that the rest of my life and would have been happy to and tried business cases, jury cases mainly. I love going in front of a jury, um, but I made the mistake of getting a fellow elected governor. I was one of his chief advisors and that pulled me into politics more and ended up as a partner in a big DC based firm and got a phone call from Banfield's CEO and founder who Peter and Phil, you both know Scott Campbell, which is who were used my old firm as their law firm to help with a coalition that you could never reassemble in America because most of the coalition partners don't like each other, but you had everybody, private practice, nonprofits, uh, AVMA, uh, HSUS, picture them at the same, in the same camp dealing with microchipping. And they asked me if I could get a solution in Congress. This was in 2005 and six. I remember saying, I, I don't think you want Congress regulating pet healthcare, but with a, with a partner of mine, we came up with an idea that proved successful with working with the USDA and a, a longtime Tuskegee friend of yours, Phil, you, and we even played golf together, Chester Gibson. Yes. He was running animal welfare and Ch Chester became a good friend. And anyway, I had a good outcome there, which can cause people foolishly to think you know something that you're talented. Sometimes you're just lucky, but uh, I it pulled me into the industry. And by 2008 and nine, it was all I was doing full time. So jumping ahead to not bore everybody with, you know, last 15 years, but I've created the Animal Policy Group. It's a for-profit. I'm the only attorney. We have 11 people uh, that work with me that's remote. We're all over the country. One of whom you both know well, uh, Eleanor Green, who's a senior consultant. We've had a good relationship. And we have now close to 50 clients across the pet healthcare, animal welfare, veterinary higher education, space, nutrition, practices, practices beyond the Mars practices, which is which Banfield is part of. We do regulatory. We do some political, some legislative lobbying. A lot of internal industry, as you both know, created the Veterinary Innovation Council and the Veterinary Virtual Care Association. So, but I'm, I'm my mentality is still kind of hired gun lawyer. I get hired to solve a problem. Not everybody agrees the problem needs to get solved, and certainly not everybody agrees with my solution, but it's fun. I mean, I get paid to try to change things, which is a job 
description that if I'd seen, I probably would have signed up for that job going, that sounds like that'd be interesting. So been involved now in most of the issues that challenge the industry, mainly because the world's changed and the environment in which veterinary medicine's conducted has changed and it's caused external pressures and just sort of new ways of looking at things to be of interest to people. And I'm on that side of the ledger pretty much all the time. So it's, it's, it's been a fun practice. I, I mean, obviously it's a great industry. The people in the industry are outstanding. I'm not saying it wouldn't be as much fun to have the same job in human medicine, but I like veterinarians a lot more than I like doctors. So it's, it's been an interesting environment, but it's, I have a front row seat, if you will, at, at some of the issues, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And you two know the issues as well as I do. So that's me. I have five kids. I've been, it's not my first marriage. So my kids are grown. Uh, four daughters uh, who live in Portland, and one of whom is going to join me in my practice, and a son who lives in Brussels. He's been in Europe for about the past six years. And my wife chairs uh, anatomy and histology at Mayo Clinic's medical school in Scottsdale, where we live right next to Scottsdale. And she also heads up curriculum. And a lot of the way I look at veterinary medicine is to look at human medicine and wonder what are they doing that makes sense that we could migrate to veterinary and not everything works and not everything is received with enthusiasm or applause, but that, that's part of my perspective. So I guess you have to always declare your pets. So one dog, Papillon puppy, the name Louie, who hiked like crazy today in 90 degree weather, and he's small. And then three bingo cats, to have, have one bingo cats to, to be courageous, <laughs> to, have, to have three is just to be just either drunk or, or just foolish to, to the nth degree. But if you don't know that breed, they're, they're just they're a hell of a lot of fun until you hear the ceramic vase crash to the floor because they just can't resist. If it's there, just giving it a little tap and seeing what happens. But so three cats and a dog. And, and no vases left in the house. I, I, not, I, not, not so many. It's been a carafe. I like wine and it's been more than one carafe just sitting there. That there's not many places to hide a carafe. So you put it on a counter and I've learned, I've learned my lesson there. That's, that doesn't happen anymore. But so that's who I am. I didn't know a lot of your past history as much as Phil probably did, but I am intrigued to go back to um, Oregon yeah. and you're growing up. And if I heard you correctly, you were in a community that still had remnants of the KKK that was anti-Catholic. Is that what you said? Yeah, it was. And I'm not saying that the, of course, the KKK flag and the white hoods and things never showed up, but they were derivatives, but it, it had its antecedents. And as you know, you know, as you, you two know, and probably all your listeners know, the, the three K's of KKK were, were Blacks, Catholics, and, and Jewish. And obviously, uh, but that's the K's, I don't want to repeat them, but you know what those stood for. So in this town, it happened to be Catholic. And there were social groups that Catholics couldn't join. I, I, I had a great childhood, but I just saw it. We lived in town, and my dad walked to work to his law office every day. We had two neighbors that just flat out hated Catholics, called us cat lickers. And I mean, and it was always weird and annoying. It was never, you know, I never went home and nobody denied me anything. So I, I can't make a grievance claim. I just encountered it. And then I got intrigued. Oregon had a governor named Walter Pierce back in the 1920s, who obviously no governor ever stood up and said, I'm a member of the KKK, but they seemed to have it nailed pretty well that he was. And a liberal town on the, on the California border, Ashland, 
I, there was a 4th of July parade once with 60 people in white hoods marching right down the middle of the street in the 1920s, which is certainly not the Oregon I knew. So I, I was just, it was just interesting to me that existed. And obviously I, I saw Portland, which is one of the whitest cities in America still is. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're very conscious of that, 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 that there was a different set of rules for black Americans and for the two high schools in Portland that were in the, in, in the more heavily black part of the city, just because Phil and I've talked about this and I admire the, the conversations you've all had. I was just thinking about, that was an interesting perspective, but, but I, would, I don't want to make too much of it in terms of my own individual case. I just counted it. I remember my mom explaining, Mark, there's just certain people that don't like Catholics. And I was like, okay. Yeah, and, and I was just intrigued because I'm, I'm curious as to how that upbringing and that environment um, might have influenced some of your your uh, future decision making, some policies, some of the ways that you approach things, because foundationally yeah. we're we're frequently influenced by upbringing that we had. So I was just curious how that might have influenced your future. Well, it it it, it did in one sense, and I, I've I've talked about this with Phil. You know, from an early early age, I'm not going to say I was six, but I wasn't twelve, so I was somewhere in you know grade school. I couldn't conceive of why. I mean, I didn't know a lot of history, you know, I mean, I, I knew what you knew in fifth, sixth grade, but I could not understand. I mean, literally just intellectually, it, it, it made no sense to me to, to think in a racial context or religion in a, in a discriminatory way. It just made no sense. I, I had, I was privileged to have really terrific Black coaches who, who were funny and empathetic and caring and great teachers. And I mean, and I had white coaches from the same college. And I just, it wouldn't have made any sense to me to just think about one in a different category than the other until you start watching movies, small towns, and you start to see what the Jim Crow South was like. And you, and you understand, well, that's, that's a completely different world. I later lived in Atlanta and for six years and really wanted to live in Atlanta. I had an opportunity to go there. Um, and it was, I, I left my law practice to go run a company. So it was, it was a big change and it was, uprooting my kids. And I told my kids, you will be grateful that you got to see the American South and to grow up in America and to live in America and only know the South through movies and through news coverage and sports, you'll miss something. And it was, it was a tremendous experience for my kids. And for me, Phil knows it from growing up, obviously completely differently, but if you've not lived in the South, you don't, you don't understand that core racial issue in the South. And I don't understand it because I came in for six years and I came back to Tennessee. So I've, I've lived eight years in the South, if you call it Tennessee, the South. But I, from the start, Peter, I've never intellectually understood any way a person gets to the conclusion that you ought to treat somebody different because they're Black or Mexican-American or they're, or they're Native American or they're from wherever. So I understand how independent your opinions are, but first of all, it, it bothers me that people can just choose a religion or choose a color to decide this is what we're going to hate, or yeah. you know, you know, this is what we're going to uh, organize against. Um, uh, uh, I found our discussions very interesting because Catholicism is something that. Is almost agnostic to me. I don't understand why why we would organize against it or any religion for that matter. Uh, I also don't understand why anti-Semitism is a thing. Yeah. Phil, I'd say one thing, and I think a lot of the anti-Catholic was ethnically driven. It was what the people would call lower class Irish, 
which is my family's roots, lower class Italian. And it was the different dress of priests and, and, and the different dress of nuns. I mean, they're just things that physically stood out. And I'm not excusing anybody, but I, I don't think it was they looked at the Catholic theology and decided Thomas Aquinas was wrong and Martin Luther was right. You know, <laughs> we're not talking about people that I doubt they think if Martin Luther didn't play ball for Alabama, they've never heard anybody named Martin Luther. But the, you know, the point is, that to me was what I concluded after, you know, living as long as I've lived. So essentially, you're telling me this is a remnant of immigration. I wouldn't say just a tent. I think it's got a heavy swath of people in New York and New England seeing what they would consider to be really low-class Italians and Irish getting off the boat and moving into their city and taking the jobs they should be happy with that they didn't want, but they were never, you know, and then, then their daughter brings home some guy named Tommy O'Neill, Bill Patino, and and suddenly they're in, it's in their world and they're not, you know, that, you know all those elements come into play. We're still living that dream, yeah. <laughs> nightmare, <laughs> yeah. if you will, and, and don't understand that many of our precepts and, and many of our practices and views are tainted by our immigration views. Right. I think so. Yeah. You both live in Southern California. I mean, you confront that every day. You go to a store, you go to a gas station, you go to go to work, you go to a movie, you go to a ball game. It's you either see I, I, a marvelous a marvelous mix and you go, we've made progress, or you see it not so marvelous and go, wow. I just don't think that the average American understands that that influence. We talk about immigration now, and now it's about Hispanics and Mexicans and you know uh, uh, crossing the border when most of the immigration occurs via air from countries <laughs> like Ukraine and, right. uh, and, and, and and other European countries, and we don't discuss that. If we were talking about Germans moving, coming through New York and moving in a thousand a day to the U.S., we'd pat ourselves in the back and say how smart we were because we'd assume they're higher educated. They make us comfortable. Yeah, it, it's no accident living in Arizona that there's so much immigration pressure because they're coming across the Mexican border. But the state of Arizona would not work tomorrow. It would not work if Mexican-Americans, who are now a third of the state population, weren't embraced and allowed to live, work, sure not without pain. But yeah, I've always thought, Phil, there's an immigration angle to it that can't be discounted. Well, if you think about it historically, since we don't really talk about American history anymore when we teach history, this is a country <laughs> of immigrants. And a lot of it started with religious freedom. I mean, you've got to go back to the uh, Mayflower. And I grew up in New York, which was the melting pot. And everybody came through Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. There was Little Italy and there was the Jewish communities and Chinatown and everything else. I mean, America is a country of initially volunteer immigrants. And then we had forced immigration as well, which is the immigrants that we brought in without choice from Africa. I'm sorry to correct you, but my culture was never considered an immigrant. We were transplants. Right. Yeah. But you, you two are right. You haven't asked me this question, but I'll just get it out there. I'm close to an anarchist on the subject of immigration. And I'll give you an argument that I give to right-wing Republicans, and, and at least I get them to pause and think about it, which is this. Those countries that have an economic future in this world, are those countries that welcome immigrants, period. 
you look across Europe, you look across Japan, China, and all that, and wonder what's the problem, is they, they can't get enough younger workers to support the retirement of their older workers. And the only thing that's kept the U.S. going to a large degree has been the Latino immigration into the country, you know, particularly in Southern California, Peter, you know, and, and, and Arizona. If you just want to be selfish about it, shoots itself in the foot to think otherwise. But to conclude that, that that's not race-based to me and that's not prejudicially based, you're kidding yourself. They look different than the typical white Southerner, even though that white Southerner probably the vegetables that were served him at a diner in East Tennessee came from a farm that was probably harvested by Latino immigrants, not necessarily Mexican, but from El Salvador or Guatemala and so forth. I mean, it's we're pretty inconsistent and ultimately phony about that issue. But but you're right, Phil, that, that's, that does not explain the Black experience, you know, the, the pure anti-immigrant side of it. But Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I totally agree with you that it's a well-known uh, concept that the, the nations that are diminishing in power or uh, vigor are the ones that have a lower birth rate than they have a death rate. And the only way to ma uh, maintain viability is through immigration. And immigration occurs as a result of the attraction of better environments, better jobs, and escape from tyranny. Those three things tend to forge immigration. And, and this nation is nothing but a nation of immigrants. And I would say that the biggest mistake, and I put that word mistake in quotes, is when a Native Americans chose to be hospitable to the original <laughs> immigrants. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly we established new rules to live by. The immigration the United States is a unique example where the culture of the, the original immigrants actually took over. It was a right. subtle invasion of the new world. You're spot on because if you think about going back to the 1600s, if the original Americans had not been welcoming to the people coming, they would never have survived the winter. And we were allowed to be a part of their life and then we took over their life and so it, it we are very fortunate to still even be an american country if you think about how welcoming the original americans were to uh to everybody who was coming in from the different countries at that point in time and by the way even the original native americans might be immigrants themselves absolutely you know? You know, that they walked across the land bridge during a certain environmental change. But our human custom is to say the first to get there are the owners, right? And yeah. once again, I find it absurd that we use race and country origin to determine how we're going to treat human beings, you yeah. know, and that we forget the basis of our commonality. And the basis of our commonality is biology, not origin or even destination. And the famous speech that suggests that we have whores uh, and drug users crossing the border is such a self-limiting view of humans. Yeah, it's interesting. I have mainly lived in the West, so I've had the ethnic group, you know, the non-Caucasian ethnic group I've had most dealings with in my life from childhood, including till now, 
have been Mexican Americans. Okay. I remember when they first came in to do farm work in around my farm county in Oregon. And one of the greatest days of my childhood was when a couple that had been in our area for a year opened up a Mexican restaurant. I'd never heard of a taco. I'd never heard of an enchilada. I'd never tasted what for all of us became instantly the greatest food we ever ate. You know, I, I remember. And then, it, it, you know, it was funny to see, you know, so I saw them not as workers who were in the same fields that I'm old enough to have been able to pick berries legally when I was nine years old. You know, you know the, the Child Labor Act came in about three years later. But I mean, so you look differently as someone who all they were allowed to do was pick beans and berries. Yeah. Suddenly they had, they had businesses. They had their kids working there. I mean, it, it, they were providing you things that you couldn't have otherwise. And it didn't take me long to be, you know, damn glad that, that, they, <laughs> I mean, that they were there. I mean, it was just made life in this town that was pretty much hamburgers and French fries all your life. Interesting. And just in one little sense. And then they became a large part of our church. Why? Because most Mexicans are raised Catholic. So, you know, and you begin to see that. Change. And suddenly that the rituals were more fun and there was more music and it, it was just different, you know, and there were more Baptist. I mean, it was just the whole thing began to change. And thankfully I didn't have anybody tell me it was wrong or bad. I just kind of noticed it and thought, oh, this is interesting. This is, this is fun. And, and I remember my son's Jesuit high school team in Portland got beaten the state championship, his soccer team by my high school. And I, I told my son, Mark, I'm going to have a hard time rooting for your team tonight because it's kind of cool <laughs> for me to see my, my hick town. And you know what? That team from McMinnville was 90% Hispanic. It wasn't O'Neill and Christensen and Brown and Jackson. It was Garcia, Rodriguez. I mean, and they were good. You know, So it's been interesting to watch it. But obviously, the Mexican experience was fundamentally different than the Black experience. Because they were, as you say, they weren't transplants. They didn't come in. They may have snuck across the border. They may have been, quote, illegals. But it was, it was, they weren't brought in in chains and sold and, 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 and treated in that culture the way they were. So I, I don't, I've never equated them at all. I just, that's been more of the ethnic diversity that I, I've looked at or bumped into. And, and when I say that, I'm not necessarily trying to promote we were treated worse kind of story. As you said, it was different. We knew nothing about the new world until we woke up in it. And our cultures were merged and submerged by our masters. And they were re-engineered out of the idea of control. The, mm -hmm. the intent was to be able to control. And so we had to learn a new language. We had to assume a new custom, if not a new culture. I have been to Catholic church a number of times and just missed the beat of music, you know, <laughs> right. when we go. But be that as it may, in those attempts to control and force uh, conforming to a different culture, that's that's totally different from those who aspire so much to either leave a country where conditions are horrible or to move to a country where opportunity exists. And in those cases, you bring your culture with you. To our listeners, we want to thank you for supporting us again. And please remember to find this podcast on Apple or Spotify. Oh, and by the way, when you do listen to us on Apple or Spotify, 
don't forget to give us a five-star rating. That's one, two, three, four, five. So follow the podcast. Make sure you uh, sign up so you're getting reminders that it's coming every week. And Apple and Spotify are your best places. And don't forget, you can also go to www.peterandphil.com if you forget where to find us. Make sure you join us for our next episode where we will continue our conversation with, with Mark Cushing and continue to dive deep into his uh, anarchistic approach to lots of different things besides immigration. <laughs> That's great. I like that. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more. 